a widely separated family inherits a house in which they have to live together. This is a great new problem of mankind. We have inherited a big house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live without each other, must learn somehow in this one big world house to live with each other. And this is our great Welcome to The World House, a podcast inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of a just and peaceful world. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, Director of the King Research and Education Institute here at Stanford. And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, Director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. The World House is an informative series of podcasts designed to introduce you to the work of the King Institute, and in particular, the King Papers Project which was started more than three decades ago when Coretta Scott King asked me to edit and publish a definitive edition of the papers of her late husband. Although King was perhaps the best-known American of the 20th century, his papers reveal much about his life that it will probably be new to you. And this World House podcast will reveal that there's still much to learn about this remarkable man. In our first podcast, we are focusing on a controversial speech that King gave at Riverside Church in New York in April 1967, his Beyond Vietnam speech. Clay, why did we choose the Vietnam speech for our first episode? Part of that was because we found this new recording, a remarkable new recording, because uh, we thought that the recording that most people have heard of the speech uh, was the best available one, but... um, just last fall in, at Riverside Church in their archive, they came across this recording that was um, very, very clear, much clearer than any other uh, recording that has been uh, released. And uh, it allows us to experience the speech pretty much like the original audience uh, for that speech in the church. Uh, when we played this recording at, in the Stanford Church, it was almost, uh, if you closed your eyes, you could believe that Martin Luther King was right there giving the speech. Yeah, we do have a sample, and we could listen to the difference between the old recording and the new recording. Let's do that. How very delighted I am to be here tonight. And how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that will be discussed tonight by turning out in such large numbers. Clay, um, why did King, as a civil rights leader, felt compelled to go out and speak against the war in Vietnam? It was a very good question because he knew that this would generate a great deal of controversy. It it was, I think, his most controversial speech. But he also felt that he was compelled as a person who saw his role as broader than simply civil rights. Uh, From an early age, he had been concerned about a broad range of problems in the world. Um, He captured that with his idea of the social gospel. Um, In one of his early 
uh, writings about his mission as a minister, he mentions unemployment, slums, economic insecurity. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mention civil rights. So um, I think Rosa Parks turned him into a civil rights leader when mm -hmm. she uh, launched the boycott in, in Montgomery, and he was there, and he accepted that role, and for 10 years uh, was very much involved in civil rights. But by 1965, the war in Vietnam was not only uh, taking up a great deal of attention um, away from the civil rights struggle in the South, but he also recognized that uh, it was taking resources that might be devoted to um, the kinds of things that were part of his social gospel. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, for a while he felt um, that the war was wrong. Um, mm -hmm. He was um, privately critical of it, but he didn't speak uh, publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, he said he was a, a loud speaker on other issues, but a very quiet actor on the war in Vietnam. So he basically waited until 1967 to speak out. Why, why so long? Well, I think that uh, he, first of all, the war um, escalated uh, during that time uh, so that more and more people were involved, more and more resources, more and more deaths uh, in Vietnam. Um, and he felt somewhat guilty that he had, did not speak out. Coretta, his wife, um, had been outspoken against the war. Uh, she was a longtime pacifist, had been involved in an organization called Women's International Strike for Peace. Mm -hmm. um, so from almost the beginning of American involvement in, in Vietnam, she's very critical and even goes to a peace conference in, in Geneva in, I think it's 1962. Mm -hmm. um, so Martin Luther King knew that she was uh, speaking in, uh, for him, mm -hmm. and he felt that he needed to speak for himself. And by, also by 1967, other civil rights leaders mm -hmm. had taken stands. Uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had mm -hmm. taken a stand against the war. Um, Julian Bond, who had mm -hmm. been elected to the Georgia legislature, was denied his seat in that legislature, and King uh, felt compelled to speak up on his behalf. Mm -hmm. that uh, denying someone a seat because of their opposition to the war was just wrong. Mm -hmm. And he also uh, felt that as a civil rights leader, he needed to speak clearly on the issue of violence. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, from the time of his receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize, he's focusing on what he sees as the triple evils of the world, mm -hmm. poverty, war, as well as racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. So um, all of these compelled him to think of, he has to speak out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he really speaks from the standpoint of him being a minister rather than a civil rights leader. And I think he says it in the speech. Let's, let's listen to what he says. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, 
my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. Well, I think that that excerpt from his, his speech explains uh, a lot of things about the speech that um, he gave there. One of them is he went through a period of preparation of that speech, uh, relying a lot on the help of Vincent Harding, mm -hmm. uh, who I knew for many years. And one of the things that Vincent shared with him was that they were both pastors. They were both deeply religious uh, people. So he asked uh, Vincent to prepare the initial draft of, of the speech, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that he would be able to express why a civil rights leader would speak out on the war. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, uh, that draft of the speech, uh, Clarence Jones, um, who worked here at the Institute for many years and was King's uh, legal advisor and sometimes uh, speechwriter, mm -hmm. he also uh, contributed uh, to the speech. And uh, so what we see by the time he's delivering it in April, he's, he's already practiced the speech. He's mm -hmm. already um, come in well-prepared. Uh, he's worked on the draft. Mm -hmm. uh, he's spoken to the people at his own church mm -hmm. about the war. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that what we see is that his purpose in coming to Riverside Church was to, first of all, have an audience of mm -hmm. um, basically clergy uh, who were concerned about the war, uh, the organization that they had formed to, to speak out. Um, and he knew that in a church setting, as opposed to a, a anti-war rally, mm -hmm. he would have a chance to lay out all of his ideas about the war, all of his uh, concerns about the war, um, without having the distraction of having other speakers or other things happening or maybe uh, being limited to a much smaller um, time. So in this speech, he's able to talk very clearly um, in ways that anticipate some of the criticisms mm -hmm. that he expects. Uh, so he um, really is um, speaking in a way that uh, even though he knows he's going to be criticized, mm -hmm. he wants to speak very clearly and strongly against the war. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the surprising things about it is that even though he knows he's going to be criticized, uh, he doesn't pull his punches. Mm, he still goes for it. Mm. Who do you think um, is going to criticize him? Or who, who did criticize him? Well, uh, just about everybody. <laughs> you know, uh, he, there, there were many people who defended him because by that time the, the anti-war movement had become um, pretty massive. Mm -hmm. um, but... Most of the people in power, you know, the Johnson administration, mm. um, most liberal Democrats even at that time mm -hmm. were supportive of the war, uh, feeling that it was necessary. Um, so he he knew that um, that this kind of criticism would come, and it could hurt his um, 
not only his uh, standing as a civil mm. rights leader, but Herger's organization because they relied on, on contributions mm-hmm. uh, to exist. Um, but I think that what he also had in mind was that there's a long history of black leaders being attacked mm. uh, for speaking out on foreign policy issues. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Robeson, uh, during the late 40s and early 1950s were um, basically uh, prosecuted um, and certainly silenced mm-hmm. um, because of their stand against the Cold War. Um, and uh, he knew that he would face that kind of criticism, that he was not uh, uh, sufficiently um, uh, anti-communist. Mm-hmm. And, and, that and that loyal. Would, and loyal to the country. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that you know, all of these um, factors explain his delay. Mm. But once he decides to give the speech, he's going to uh, speak as strongly as he can against mm. the war and lay out all the reasons. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the speech. Um, what are the key points that King makes in the speech? I think one of the most important was he was saying that it was just simply inconsistent of him to argue for nonviolence at home, uh, especially during a period when um, many black activists were becoming more militant, and he's saying, uh, stay nonviolent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still an important uh, uh, strategy for the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wondered about the consistency of how, how could he uh, tell young black men who might be drafted Mm-hmm. into the war and fight for democracy 10,000 miles away when they don't have their full rights here at home. Mm-hmm. Let's see what he says to, to, that, to that point. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. I think that was probably the most controversial statement he makes in the speech although there are many other controversial mm-hmm. statements. But I, what I think is most important about the speech and what has continuing relevance is that he believes and, and points out that the war is simply a symptom of something that he calls a deeper malady in the country, though. Mm-hmm. And it will require a reordering of priorities mm-hmm. uh, to deal with the issues he feels are of high priority at home, while all of these resources are being devoted to the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that 
call for a reordering of priorities, um, what he later in the speech calls a revolution of values, mm-hmm. uh, that that becomes the, the major underlying theme and, and, and one that he says that unless we address that problem, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be faced with um, Vietnam-like wars going into the future. And I think uh, that was certainly uh, was borne out by what happened after his death. Mm-hmm. He quotes, he quotes Kennedy in that speech. Let's let's listen to that quote, and maybe you could also tell us what he meant by that. That the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, "Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable." I think what he's suggesting there is that. Many of these countries, Vietnam, um, other countries that had um, had been colonies of um, colonized by Europe, all of them were trying to uh, move past uh, that status of being a colony and being an in, truly independent nations, able mm-hmm. to determine what kind of government they have, uh, whether it's socialist or capitalist. Uh, you know, all of these sorts of things that. Uh, any independent country would want to have, that he's arguing that that kind of of internal revolution that's going on in the world of of breaking free from from imperialism is motivating um, much of the world, uh, especially in Africa and Asia, Mm -hmm. and to a lesser degree, I guess, in Latin America, Mm -hmm. and that we need to understand those revolutions. We need to support those revolutions. He says that explicitly throughout the speech, that, um, that we are on the wrong side in the world revolution. I think it was this way of saying that some American leaders, uh, such as Kennedy, uh, recognize that um, desire. And, and I guess he's making the larger point that often we seem to think as a nation we have everything to teach to the world but nothing to learn from it. Mm. So we see... Uh, what's happening in Vietnam through our own eyes, not through the eyes of the Vietnamese, Mm -hmm. who see us as the continuation of Mm -hmm. French colonialism. And uh, and I think that that um, part of the speech is, again, uh, quite controversial, Mm -hmm. because most Americans did see it as part of the Cold War, part of the expansion of uh, Russian and Chinese uh, communism. Um, But that was not what was driving um, the struggle in Vietnam, according to him. Mm. What was driving it was their desire to break free of the legacy of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that when we look through his speech, perhaps um, that prediction that unless we deal with the issues, underlying issues, we'll be facing other Vietnams in the future. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even more to the point uh, was that we need to start thinking globally. We need to start developing what he called an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in our individual societies. Mm -hmm. And this kind of brings us back to the title of this podcast, The World House, because I think what he's suggesting is that we need to start thinking of the idea that we, as he puts it, uh, in the metaphor of the world house, we're, we've inherited this house. Mm-hmm. It, it's the earth. Uh, many diverse 
types of people live in this house, and we have to learn to live together. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to develop this loyalty to um, mankind as a whole, as he puts it, rather than simply to our own individual nations. And, uh, and I think that this, this call is something that gets to the heart of his philosophy. Uh, this uh, overriding um, concern for mankind as a whole, but also um, his his desire to uh, you know have what he called an unconditional love, mm-hmm. um, a recognition that uh, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably the the most challenging part of his of his speech, but it's also the most challenging part of all of his speeches throughout his career. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that uh, he's usually seen as a civil rights leader, Mm -hmm. but I don't think he saw himself primarily as a civil rights leader. Mm. I think when we look very closely, as we will in future episodes, at his life, at a very early age, he develops this sense of uh, a global vision. And uh, that stays with him, and rather than seeing him being radicalized during his last years, what I would see is him returning to some of his earlier ideas Mm -hmm. and some of Greta's earlier ideas Mm. about uh, uh, global peace and justice. So so I think for me, the speech is one of the clearest expressions of his overall Uh, perspective for viewing the world. Mm -hmm. You listen to Claiborne Carson and Mira Foster and The World House. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about the Beyond Vietnam speech, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website, kinginstitute.stanford.edu. On our next podcast, we will introduce you to the home where King grew up and spent his formative years. Come back next time to learn how a young boy named Mike King learned the life lessons that allowed him to become the world-famous Martin Luther King Jr. we know today.